Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Thursday of every month at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live on December 20th, 2012. The theme of the evening was The Gift. Your next storyteller is the co-host of the show. Um, he's a writer and a poet. I'll, I'll tell you all that. He's a poet. And tonight he looks like the most handsome steel worker in the state of Pennsylvania. Please welcome Robert Rutherford. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here. It gets difficult to remember the dead because as time moves further away from their passing, all of your memories of them start to blend together. After the years build up over the sharp edge of their loss, all you are left with is a dulling patina, just a color of feeling that can only tickle at things that actually happened between you and the deceased. So it is with my grandfather Marvin Johnson, a funny, caring, mean son of a bitch who worked harder than anyone I've ever known and died before he hit the ground when the big heart attack pulled him into infinity. If I dig deep enough, I have impressions of him down in my very foundation, memories of being very small that generally include riding in his Jeep. He would take the doors off and buckle me into the passenger seat for a ride to the Jar Creek General Store in Sedalia to get candy. Riding in a soft-top Jeep without any doors was about as thrilling as space flight to me, and I bordered on shrieking hysteria whenever he asked to take me to town. I remember the roaring wind of the open road, the steady, growing grumble of the tires on the asphalt road, the transfixing view of the solid yellow line demarcating the side of the road, the tiny wavering of its imperfections. I remember the tinny country music that would pour out of the AM radio and my grandfather's smoky voice barking along with the country crooners, husky and just out of tune. He sold ball bearings for most of his life. He smoked a pipe. He had a cruel sense of humor that I appreciate more in reverie than I did when he was subjecting me and my sisters to it. He used to sit in his lazy boy and clean his shotgun on Christmas Eve, talking about how we were going to eat reindeer for Christmas. And I would cry and cry and cry. (laughs) I bloodied my nose on his knee once while we were roughhousing, and he carried me to the sink in his arms, blood pouring down my chin. He was a skilled tobogganist, a builder of ramps, a rider of children's tricycles. He wore his hats cocked slightly to one side and always had a pen in his breast pocket. He built the house we all lived in after my mother and her second husband divorced. His right index finger was lost down to the first knuckle in an electrical accident. He was devout in his faith as a Lutheran and a drinker of whiskey. He gave third-degree Indian burns and wore polyester work pants 365 days a year. I was the oldest male grandchild, and as such, he favored me in ways that my sisters and my cousins resented. He laughed fully, but not loudly, like it was all happening in his chest, but couldn't find its way out. When I became a teenager, I did the changing for both of us. He was obdurate and firm in his displeasure. I severed my ties with the church, left home for months on end, surfing couches and popping pills. I was in trouble, and I was just fine. He was an intolerant fucker who once told me that if it were up to him, he'd just kick my ass out of the house until I got a haircut and grew some balls. I barely graduated high school and moved to Seattle in the great flannel exodus of the mid-90s. And I didn't call him, I didn't write him, and he met my silence with his own. He died in 1996. He loved country music and old cars. He was a racist ass. 
He wore a turquoise ring and learned to tell the weather from his youth spent on a Sioux reservation outside of Rapid City. I love him and I resent him. I hate him for making me feel so unwanted and wrong-headed. I miss him terribly. It feels really complicated, all of those hues of memory making the color of emotion indistinguishable. Now country music, that's complicated stuff. It's a shuffling call for the giddy-up to carry your heartbreak on to the next piece of work you can muster. And pack it all into a shot glass and chug it down. Grab a partner and get to moving because ain't nothing going to last. I don't remember anything about Marvin. Uh, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember anything that Marvin used to sing. But I can recall those candied trips in the Jeep and how they were soundtracked exclusively with oldie-timey country music. In my memories, I can see his mouth moving, sending out his contribution to a hymn or to a rousing chorus in an old country song as his jeep bumped along a dirt road. But there are a growing number of days when I try to think about what his voice sounded like, and I just can't do it. Days when I have to return to my box of photographs to recall the cleft in his chin or the crook of his eyebrows. I have no photographs that show his stunted finger. When you call out in a canyon, you'll hear an echo return once, twice, three times maybe, but it eventually just gives itself over to the air, a wavy line of reverberation that falls as still as summer's midnight in the country after the cicadas stop their fussing and the only thing that's left to do is watch the sky turning over. That one note that affirms your existence shaking out as still as a heart that has stopped beating, that muscular pendulum that swings so wildly between love and hate. Our voices give gifts with diminishing returns, and if memory is a melody, that, then when I hear what I hear of Marvin Johnson, it's decaying into tones, it's descending slowly into static, it's descending slowly into the hum of time transpiring. Thanks. Um, your final storyteller is also leaving Denver, one of Denver's most creative people. Um, also leaving for Los Angeles. Um, she's a stand-up comedian, and she does um, these like comedy mashups, these like really funny videos online, and some uh, some great musical uh, mashups. Please welcome Abby Jordan. What a night, huh? I feel like we worked through some things. I tell you, about five stories into that, and I was like, oh, I'm not prepared. <laughs> I am not towing the line of this tugboat. <laughs> That's how you say things? Oh. The other thing I realized listening to all the stories is <laughs> I don't have a lot of gift experience at all, um, or friends. So... <laughs> I, uh, I, grew, I, grew, I grew up in foster care when I was like 10. And I know it sounds like, oh no, another one of these. But actually, it's one of the funniest parts of my life, if you think about it. Because how many awkward things happen when you're a spirited young girl such as myself that you can later recount on if you didn't block everything out <laughs> because of emotional trauma. The, uh... So... So my mom raised me until I was 10 the best she could. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> and after that, my dad, well, I went into foster care. She signed me over to the state. My dad came back into my life, you know, because he was like, 
oh, finally, it's safe. <laughs> it's safe. There's supervision and stuff because my mom's fucking crazy. Um, and uh, and I, got, I met him when I was 10, and I didn't like him because I heard a lot of awful things about him from my mom. And, uh, and I tried to get to know him again when I was 17 because I thought, I should have a dad. I should have a dad. No, I should definitely have a dad. I don't need a dad. I can take care of myself, you know? Like, that's, that was my mentality. Finally, when I was 20, I decided, okay, I'm ready to forgive him because I was, like, going to church at the time. And I was like, oh, I'm not angry because anger is Satan. I didn't really believe that. I didn't actually feel that way at all, but, like, I didn't really know what church was either. Like, I was just kind of going because it felt good. I didn't really know all the dogma or anything. And then I was like, wait, you think he's God? What? I don't, okay. Anyway, the, uh, the, uh, thank you. The thing, the thing about meeting my, my dad and my dad's side of the family was he is, it's a good family. Like, it's a good Lebanese family. It's like, you know, doctors and lawyers and smart fucking people. And that side genetically that I drew from to be able to read right now. <laughs> To be, you know, to be able to put sentences together and not just wet myself in angry um, altercations with people all the time. Like so many other kids in foster care grow up to do. Uh, my grandparents, I met them when I was like 21 or 22, and I met the entire extended family when I was 23. And if you think Christmases are fucking awkward, you know what I'm... Do people think they're awkward? I think they're... Try being, like, in a family that has known each other their entire lives, and then all of a sudden you're reintroduced as the first grandchild. But, you know, it's the weirdest fucking thing in the world. And all my cousins are, like, accomplished musicians, like, educated and just very, you know, even in their wild days, at least they're in college, you know. And me, I'm like, well, I, I tricked somebody into giving counseling. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I hated it. I hated going to Christmases there. And then my grandparents, who are the sweetest people, they travel a lot. They'll, like, go on, like, little trips because they're old. So they'll go to Hawaii or whatever, and they'll bring us back stuff. And one year, they brought, like, the grandma brought back the grandma. Like, listen how detached I am. <laughs> it's like, like some, like, scientific, like, I'm objectively, like, dissecting it from an outsider perspective. The grandma seems to feel warmth. <laughs> it's weird. But she gave, she gave us all ukuleles that said Hawaii on it. <laughs> and, um, and she said, and, and I, she said, with her hands clasped, oh, I just, it's my dream that all my grandchildren will learn to play and play me a song. <laughs> it's like, I grew up in foster care. <laughs> you know, like, this is too much expectation of me. Maybe, maybe these other, like, kids you know, that were loved and nurtured to follow through with learning things, then yeah, they might be able to strum four chords for you, old woman, but me, I'm on a gift card. <laughs> but I took the, the ukulele as graciously as possible, and I strummed it <laughs> to my cat's dismay. And, uh, and then one, and then the year after that, she gave us these, she gave, like, gender-appropriate gifts to so all the women, all the girls, I, guess, I don't know. Well, who am I? Just kidding. Uh, 
She gave us these like pink ceramic um, iridescent purses that had a little butterfly on it, like lace coming out. <laughs> Nothing could be more awful than what she gave all the girls. I think the guys got money or something, but. I think we were supposed to hang them on our wall, and it was the most hideous thing that I have no problem throwing things away that I'm not going to use. I don't. I'm not sentimental at all. Very little sentiment. I'm more of a minimalist. like to pack and go, pack and go, pack and go, you know? But I kept kept this for a couple years. And then I met the fellow who was going to be – I was friends with him for a while before I started dating him, like a year. And uh, he he was taking notes. Um, and we, he thought it was just the funniest thing, this person. I was like, oh, we must be soulmates. So, um, (laughs) we had this little game where we would, um, sneak into each other's houses and, uh, and like hide it. And so like, so like, it was like my turn or whatever. It was his turn. And it was like, whoever could think of a more creative place to hide it. And one time I remember we were like playing with candle wax or something. I'm serious. And I look up and I look up like, oh, and there it was hanging from the ceiling. He was like, oh, got you. And I was like, thank you. But then, but then I was like really excited about getting him. And one day, because he, he was a teacher, and I was like, uh, I'm really going to blow the lid off this pickle jar. <laughs> I put it under his gas pedal of his car, thinking, <laughs> thinking he's going to have to find it first thing in the morning, right? Because you can't move without stepping on the gas. But what happened was he kind of back. Oh, he doesn't die. I know that's the theme of tonight. Let's <laughs> like he's uh, he's okay. i he's with somebody new. <laughs> I'm really not even mad about it anymore. But uh, but he so he goes to pull out, and this is in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. Anybody know of Portland at all? John, Johnny Morehouse. All right. Well, this one's for you. Let's go out there. <laughs> um. There's a street on, there's a busy street that he lived on on Belmont. It's also like this bohemian, like, Portland fucking neighborhood. And, um, sorry, I I don't really like it that much there. But he, um, he went to start, he started his car, and he, like, kind of backed out and pulled into the, into the busy traffic (laughs) because... Because he could, he didn't have to use much gas. But then, like, there was a bus behind him, and he tried to push, go forward, and he was stuck there, almost getting killed. And I, and that was my like, oh, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow we stayed together after that, and um, and to prove to him how sorry I was, I smashed the purse or. I smashed it. I said, oh, how dare you? <laughs> An adamant object? Get legs and come up with an idea like that. Oh, God. But we ended up moving to Colorado together in Boulder, <laughs> where, he got, <laughs> where he got a really good teaching job, and I, um, I got to feel like I was in a serious relationship. It wasn't really, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know. It was love. You know what I mean? But we ended up breaking up while I was there, and I was devastated because I was 25, didn't know myself yet, like my 
brain just started forming. <laughs> that's like that's scientific. Like your brain doesn't actually form until you're 25, and um, for some people it never does. It, it it happens. I don't know where I'm at. I'm trying to you know find peace, whatever. I uh, I had this uh, breakup with him, and I lived on this baseline and 30th, just this busy intersection in Boulder. And he drove that fucking Subaru. And I got to tell you, every time a Subaru went by my house, I was like, oh, maybe it's him. You know how fucked up that is in Boulder? <laughs> I cried so much. My roommate was like, dude, are you drinking enough water? <laughs> like, no. Uh, but we ended up getting back together for a little bit and then moved in together and... Um, and then uh, broke up, and then I found stand-up comedy, <laughs> 2007, and moved to Denver, and uh, was so mad and bitter because he moved on right away, and I was so mad and bitter for the longest time, but finally something snapped, and I wasn't mad anymore. I was, like, so indifferent to this person that I felt so strongly about that I would crush that amazing purse. <laughs> And I'd, I'd have to say, the greatest gift is time. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by the Denver Diatribe. Check out their weekly show at denverdiatribe.com. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the Internet Superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.